Thank you for watching NTD Business coming up. Another major train derailment in less than a month. This time, it's a Union Pacific coal train in Nebraska. The Environmental Protection Agency ordering Norfolk Southern to clean up the Ohio train derailment, while the transportation head calls for more train safety regulation. The Supreme Court hearing a case with broad implications for free speech and social media. Social media companies' immunity from lawsuits is at stake. Russian President Vladimir Putin suspends a key nuclear arms treaty with the U.S. while blaming the Ukraine war on the West. The NBA and Chinese fintech company Ant Group are teaming up, despite the NBA having a troubled past with China. What will the deal involve? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. Another train derailment in the Midwest. A Union Pacific coal train derails in Nebraska. This is the third major derailment in the region in less than a month. A Union Pacific freight train derailed near the town of Gothenburg, Nebraska, early Tuesday morning at around 1.45 a.m. local time. It had around 30 cars carrying coal. Emergency hazmat crews responded to the scene. There were no flames or smoke from the derailment. Union Pacific Railroad said the crash doesn't appear to pose a threat to local residents. The railroad company told media outlets, quote, no one was injured. Cleanup has begun with heavy equipment on site. An investigation into the derailment is currently underway. This is the third major train derailment in the Midwest in less than a month. It comes after a Norfolk Southern train with toxic material derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, and another derailment near Detroit, Michigan. The EPA has ordered Norfolk Southern to handle and pay for all the cleanup for the Ohio incident. And the Transportation Secretary wants more regulation to improve rail safety. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. 18 days after a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous chemicals derailed in eastern Palestine, Ohio, the EPA announced a legally binding order on Tuesday. It orders the railway company to pay for and handle all cleanup of the spill, which ignited into a days-long fire, resulting in the death of wildlife as well as water and soil contamination. Meanwhile, the Department of Transportation is questioning whether or not cost-cutting measures caused the derail. In a statement on Tuesday, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said profit and expediency must never outweigh the safety of the American people. Buttigieg wants to increase inspections on high-hazard flammable trains. He also wants Congress to make it easier to impose new train safety regulations and higher maximum fines for violating them. Buttigieg insisted that the railway industry do everything in its power to improve rail safety. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Buttigieg says he will be visiting East Palestine, Ohio soon, but he didn't specify when. Meanwhile, another tough blow in Ohio. One person died and at least a dozen were injured after an explosion tore through a metals plant there yesterday. The blast scattered molten metal and debris that rained down on neighboring buildings. The disaster caused a major fire and sent smoke billowing into the sky. The falling debris thankfully spared people at neighboring businesses. The explosion was about 70 miles northwest of East Palestine, Ohio. And another explosion happened this morning in Florida. Two people were killed and more injured. 
It happened at a welding business near Miami around 8.30 a.m. Footage shows the flames engulfing several vehicles and structures. Firefighters from Miami-Dade Fire Rescue arrived at the scene and put out the fire by 10 a.m. It's unclear right now what caused the fire. Miami-Dade police say they are investigating. Turning to Europe on the heels of the one-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war, Russian President Vladimir Putin suspended a nuclear arms control treaty with the United States. This comes as he addressed the nation today on the war in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country will pause the New START treaty with the United States. The agreement sets limits on the nuclear arsenals of both countries. I'm forced to announce today that Russia is suspending its participation in the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty. Let me repeat, Russia does not abandon the treaty, but suspends its participation in it. The New START treaty was signed by then-President Obama and President Medvedev of Russia in 2010. It took effect the following year. The treaty caps the number of strategic nuclear warheads the two nations can deploy. The U.S. and Russia hold about 90% of the world's existing nuclear warheads. The quantity is enough to destroy the Earth many times over. Putin's remarks were part of a major address to the parliament in Moscow. The speech came one year after he ordered the invasion of Ukraine. Flanked by four Russian tricolor flags, Putin told Russia's elites that the war was forced upon them. He accused the U.S.-led NATO alliance of fanning the flames of the conflict. Responsibility for fomenting the Ukrainian conflict, for its escalation, and for the increasing number of victims lies entirely with Western elites. And, of course, the current regime in Kiev. Throughout his nearly two-hour speech, Putin vowed to advance the battles in Ukraine, claiming it's impossible to defeat Russia. Moscow has suffered three major setbacks on the battlefield, but still controls about one-fifth of Ukraine. In response to Putin pausing the nuclear arms treaty, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called it an irresponsible move. Uh, the announcement by uh, Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in New START is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Uh, we'll be watching carefully to see what uh, Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and, and, and that of our allies. Blinken says Washington remains ready to discuss strategic arms limitation with Moscow at any time. And the NATO Secretary General urged Moscow to reconsider the decision. On Wall Street, stocks ended lower today. The Dow fell nearly 700 points, over 2 percent. S&P dropped 82 points, or 2 percent. And the Nasdaq lost 295 points, or 2.5 percent. And the battle over Section 230 has begun. The Supreme Court started hearing oral arguments in a landmark case that could have far-reaching implications for free speech and social media as well. The case, Gonzalez versus Google, began when terrorists killed Noemi Gonzalez during the 2015 Paris terrorist attacks. Gonzalez's family sued Google for not taking down ISIS terrorism-related videos and even sometimes recommending them. The justices 
decision on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act may decide Google's fate. For decades, Section 230 has been seen as a cornerstone of the Internet. It shields online platforms like Google from liability for content that third-party users have posted. For example, under this law, you can't sue Google because its platform has defamatory YouTube videos. The platform itself, Google, isn't responsible for that content which third parties have posted. If Section 230 were repealed, social media companies would lose immunity. A flood of lawsuits would likely bombard them, damaging and changing their businesses. But on the other hand, critics argue the law enables censorship and allows harmful content like terrorism-related content. The Supreme Court arguments, which were supposed to last around an hour, ended up taking three hours. The nine Supreme Court justices questioned lawyers from each side one by one. The lawyer representing the Gonzalez family, Eric Schnapper, claims that their argument revolves around Google's recommendations. They blame Google for recommending ISIS-related videos, not for the videos themselves. The, the claim here is about the encouragement of, of, of users to go look at particular content. And that's the underlying substantive claim is encouraging people to go look at ISIS videos would be aiding and abetting ISIS. More on that tomorrow. Um, but if that's an actionable claim, then the conduct here would fit within it. Meanwhile, the lawyer representing Google, Lisa Blatt, argued that Section 230 doesn't mention how third-party content is organized on the platform. And putting out content always requires some form of organization. The other side agrees Section 230 bars any claim that YouTube aided and abetted ISIS by broadcasting ISIS videos. So they instead focus on YouTube's organization of videos based on what's known about viewers, what they call targeted recommendations. All publishing requires organization and inherently conveys that same implicit message. Plaintiffs should not be able to circumvent C1 by pointing to features inherent in all publishing. We talked to attorney Gerard Felitti for insights on today's arguments. Felitti felt the nine justices were worried about the consequences of taking action on Section 230. They asked many hypothetical questions about what would happen under many different scenarios. They had a lot of questions about where this ultimately leads and whether this opens Pandora's box to saying that pretty much the search engines or uh, providers like Google, like YouTube, like Meta or Twitter could be liable for pretty much anything. Uh, it really goes to the core of whether it's time to set aside Section 230 and whether it's time for Congress to act on it or whether the Supreme Court can do something with this case to narrow it down a little. Felitti believes the justices will be unwilling to be in favor of the Gonzalez family. He believes they will punt the situation to Congress and let Congress decide what to do with Section 230. One issue that came up repeatedly is that they admitted that they didn't understand some of the nuances of how, how this worked very well. Not the legal issues, but how the Internet itself works and how recommendations work, how publishing content and recommending it works or the chain of decision within a company that says that we will promote content X and not content Y. So this lack of certainty influences how comfortable they are with issuing a ruling. Indeed, the words I'm confused and I don't understand popped up repeatedly during the hearing. Justice Elena Kagan even joked that they were a court, not the nine greatest experts on the Internet. 
Meanwhile, the justices will hear arguments from a very similar case tomorrow. The case Twitter v. Tamne considers whether the platforms are liable for terrorism-related content. We'll keep you updated. Pharma company Merck today said its COVID-19 pill fails to prevent infection among household members. In a trial, it studied 1,500 people who lived with someone who tested positive for COVID-19. The people who took the pill were about 24% less likely to develop COVID than those who did not get the pill. Merck said this failed to meet the main goal of the trial. The results are similar to data from its rival, Pfizer. Pfizer's COVID pill also failed to prevent infections among household contacts. And Walmart is warning of a slowdown this year as high inflation takes its toll on sales. America's largest retailer reported a strong holiday shopping season today, saying it saw more than 8% sales increase during its latest quarter at U.S. stores that were open for at least a year. Walmart said more customers are buying its private label brands and more higher-income households are shopping for groceries and essentials at its stores. But the retail giant also says it's forecasting slower sales and profit growth and expects the year ahead will be more challenging. Joining us now is Sarah Wyeth, Consumer Retail Sector Lead, S&P Global Ratings. Now, Sarah, we had the Walmart uh, earnings today. Big picture, what is the outlook for retailers this year, do you think? I think it's going to be um, a a challenging year. Again, thanks for having me today, Don. Um, I think it's going to be a challenging year, and Walmart's earnings really spelled that out with the uh, 2.5% to 3% top-line growth that they uh, guided to for 23. It's the last half of last year um, is just rolling into this year, which is essentially a lot of uncertainty around consumers and very high inflation. So that's the main reason, you think, consumer demand? I think that's probably one of the big drivers, but the second really is costs. So uh, all those inflationary costs have not abated yet. Suppliers have some more costs to push through. We hear from some of the suppliers too, for instance, grocers or retailers like Walmart, that they're still expecting double-digit inflation in the coming quarter, so that has to still be passed through. Um, Still, it's going to be difficult because retailers are are really starting to push back. But so they have the inflate, you still have that inflation pressure. And then on top of that, the consumers weakening because they're spending down their savings. They're starting to use more credit cards. Um, So we'll see, but it looks like it's going to be a difficult year. So on inflation, do you think uh, it's going to moderate a bit uh, this year? Are prices coming down? Our, in our base case, a third quarter of last year was the peak of inflation in terms of what inflation that consumers are seeing. Um, and when we talk to retailers and their suppliers, they're not talking about inflation increasing, but they are not talking about deflation. They're talking about disinflation, so a lower rate of inflation. But still, like I just mentioned, uh, for some, still double digits going forward. So there's, And there's a lag in how those suppliers can pass through the cost to retailers. So there's still more to come. But I don't know about you, but I've seen at my grocery store some uh, a lot more discounting and, and promotional activity. So I think retailers really are starting to push back. So it should ease over the course of the year. If you think about the back half of the year, more costs coming down and the suppliers 
lapping there or having gotten through most of the costs or all that they're going to get through, it should start easing in the second half of the year for retailers. Now, what's going into inflation? What are driving prices high, do you think? Are, are supply chains still a factor? Supply chains are still a factor, but far less so. Um, it's mentioned on every earnings call. Um, it's generally described as it is getting better. It has gotten a lot better than it was in, say, 2021 um, and 2020 during the pandemic. But um, there's still there's still not quite the fill rates um, that uh, of pre-pandemic levels. So there's still some work to be done. There's still kinks. Uh, some retailers describe um, wanting to have still some kind of buffer of inventory, certainly not to the extent that they did going into 22 when consumers then pivoted and they got kind of stuck with all that capacity, all that inventory. Um, but some level of safety stock is what we're hearing as needed because the supply chain issues have not worked themselves out completely. So in light of what you just said now, if you had to take a guess, what type of retailers would be the winners uh, for this year? So discount, like Walmart, um, dollar stores, off price, um, those retailers are going to benefit from the trade down that consumers are actively engaging in right now. Um, also, essential grocery versus discretionary, discretionary categories, discretionary retailers, for instance, apparel, are going to have a harder time. It's going to be much more competitive, much harder to pass forward the prices of their own that that can keep up with the own their own costs. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Really appreciate your insight. Thank you very much, Don. And meanwhile, rising tensions between the U.S. and China aren't slowing down a partnership between the NBA and the Chinese financial tech company Ant Group. NTD's Jar Marshall has more. Ant Group said on Tuesday it had entered into a strategic partnership with the NBA League in China that would see the two cooperate in areas such as video content, program broadcasting, and membership. Fans in China would have access to NBA video content on Alipay, the hugely popular payment app owned by Ant Group, the company said in a statement. NBA China last week launched a channel in Alipay that shows user-generated content from NBA China's network of influencers and Alipay's authorized content creators. Ant Group added, the collaboration will also entail joint marketing campaigns and digital collectibles, Ant Group said. Doing business in China has had its share of problems in the past. The NBA's partnership with state broadcaster CCTV went into an 18-month media blackout in October 2019, after then-Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey tweeted in support of widespread protests in Hong Kong. Morey quickly deleted the tweet, which was criticized by the Chinese Communist Party. Morey later posted another tweet stating that his earlier post was based on one interpretation of a complicated event and that he had a lot of opportunity since that tweet to hear and consider other perspectives. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, people using artificial intelligence to write books and sell them on Amazon. People who otherwise wouldn't be authors are making a quick buck. And we ask a tech expert on the dangers of AI. Does artificial intelligence have the potential to take over humanity? That and more coming up on NTD Business.
welcome back. A rise in AI-generated books being sold on Amazon. There were over 200 e-books in Amazon's Kindle store as of mid-February that listed ChatGPT as an author or co-author. There is even new subgenre on Amazon, which are books about using ChatGPT. Some had never imagined they could be a published author, but after learning about the ChatGPT artificial intelligence program, they figured an opportunity had landed in their lap. One author on Amazon used the AI software to create a 30-page illustrated children's ebook in a matter of hours. He's now offering it for sale on Amazon. Joining me now is Arthur Herman Hudson Institute Senior Fellow. Now, I want to have a, top, a discussion on the topic of AI. We're seeing uh, a renewed focus, sort of, on this, uh, this area with ChatGPT taking the world by storm. But can we be too reliant on AI? If we have AI think for us, do everything for us, would we lose our inherent abilities? Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I think uh, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Um, here's what I'm thinking we need to get straightened out is what we mean by rely upon. Um, and we also, I think, you have to have a very clear picture of what AI or artificial intelligence is really all about before we start disappearing down the science fiction hole of uh, thinking that it's a means by which machines learn to think uh, better and, uh, than human beings and eventually take over from human beings. But it's important to realize what AI really does. In, and in fact, really, it's not a technology at all. It's really an enhancement to technology. What it does is, is that it uses, um, it, it builds predictive modeling based on pattern recognition via machine learning applications. In other words, the, and the more data you put into the machine learning process, uh, the more uh, accurate and the more precise those prediction, predictive models become. So that's really all it is. It's a, it's a pattern recognition. Uh, system. I think if we think about it as a tool, as a tool that generates the possibility for people to make decisions based on the information and data and arguments that are presented by the machine to them, then we're going to have a much clearer picture of what AI is all about. It doesn't replace human beings. What it does is empower human beings. The question is, which ones? Wouldn't humans lose the inherent ability to do certain things if we rely too much on AI? Well, I suppose there's, there's, there's a remote possibility that that might happen. But I think that what we have to bear in mind here is, is that a lot of what is going to be replaced is a lot of very tedious um, work. There's a whole range of other skills uh, and a whole range of other uh, 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 human potentials which machines are not going to be able to replace here. And one of them is good judgment. And to be able to make the call is to, uh, here I've got three or four options, and this is the one that's actually going to work the best for me. But at the same time, the decision is still yours. It's still someone, a human being, who's got to make that final call and make that final decision about it. And this is where I think we began to worry, where we do need to worry about, should we say, the dark side of AI. And that is who does make the call, who does make that decision. The center for our concern should be about the human operators, the designers, the coders, the, those who exercise and use AI for that kind of control. It's not, it's, not, it's not AI itself. It's not the machine. 
That's the problem. The day that many fear that artificial intelligence, because of this highly sophisticated pattern recognition skill and ability to create these incredibly complex predictive models, the fear that someday they will replace human beings, I think is really much overstated. As someone put it, the day that the only, the, the day that artificial intelligence is able to replace humans is when we can train artificial intelligence to be stupid. And we're a long, long way away from that. Wow. Thank you so much today. I, I wish we had more time. I, there's so much more I wanted to ask you, but maybe next time. Maybe Arthur next Herman, time. always a pleasure to speak to you. It's been great. Thanks. Thank you. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Mai. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.